Equal the Dead by Rapper With your hosts, Timon Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc Three underground rap nerds walked into a bar An argument ensued about who the goats are The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod Now fans worldwide say Not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad Who chronicles the vanguard of hip-hop at large Rap taste slacked off, no need to be mad, dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod Rap, pop, pop, pop Dead Bud Rap Pod. What's going on, everybody? Today, it's me, Solo Dolo, your man's Demone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One, introing a abbreviated episode this week, but no less flavorful. We got Shinjo 2, who is a Japanese-born Bay Area-bred rapper who made a lot of interesting music, especially in the um, early 2000s. Somebody that Nate and Dave put me on to, um, and we have a, a real cool conversation with him. Talks about his humble beginnings, rapping in two different languages, and working with incredible producers like Nuja Bees. So, peep this interview coming up right here. Also, stay tuned because next week we are going to have our quarter one year in rap extravagangsta where we break down all the best rap releases from q1 of 2023 the shit is a quarter over somehow uh but we've been listening to a ton of rap music and we want to tell you how we feel about it so make sure to tap in next week for that in addition and every week i say this but it's always true you should definitely check out our patreon patreon.com slash dad bod rap pod that's where you can connect with us real tough we put up special segments my playlist series dims gems nate's radio show fly sporadic and we have a, a lot of good back and forth with the homies on the patreon so become one for five dollars a month or 51 dollars a year and with all that being said let's get into this interview shinjo 2 Dad Bod Rap Pod. Dad Bod Rap Pod. Every week we talk to people who have moved and shaped hip hop culture. This week is no different. Joining us in Zoom from Honolulu, you said? Yes, that's right. Oh, man. We got Shingo too. What's happening, man? How you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you're in Honolulu. So what is it like one o'clock or something? I always feel like it's the morning there. It's uh, 3.30 p.m. So uh, we're only two, oh, hours, you're only two hours behind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes three because of daylight savings, but we don't observe daylight savings over here. So <laughs> smart. Well, well played. <laughs> Th- thanks for coming on the program. Uh, you've gotten around a lot, just kind of looking at your history, where you lived and, and made music. Uh, can you talk about where did you find hip hop? Where did hip hop find you? Well, officially, it really wasn't until I moved to Berkeley in fall of 1993. 
So I went to high school in Bay Area in a high uh, place called Menlo Park. I attended Menlo Atherton High School, just a public school, which was my first exposure to hip hop, really, as a as a young teenager, just moved from Japan. And then I would consume a lot of, you know, cassettes and just be exposed to hip hop culture as a whole. You know what I mean? But I was just a fan. And, and then when I moved up to Cal in the fall of 93, that's when I was just a baptized by the streets so to speak you know and and i was just sucked into it right away awesome thank you for that we um and i'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit later but can just for the audience can you let people know exactly what the terracotta troop is and you know conceptually and how it connects to sort of what you did well that was a group concept uh shoot probably like from 2000 to perhaps like 2005 or six we had a run and obviously okay. we, we borrowed that name from the chinese terracotta troops we just kind of like that whole concept and we're you know we're just trying to be really avant-garde you know one time we even ended up on the cover of herb magazine with our shaved heads and painted faces and <laughs> we're really just trying to do something different you know and it wasn't mm -hmm. just hip-hop but like i said we're really just trying to be experimental uh, working with drum and bass djs and my guitarist capital he was very well versed in rock and mm -hmm. he was into zappa and all that stuff so i was just trying to you know stay open-minded and not stay in the conventional uh hip-hop field at that time mm -hmm. yeah and that was also the touring touring um group name Mm. that's awesome man um we're from san jose we're in san jose right now so just down down the road from uh menlo park so that's cool um we have a local connection um i just a couple of things i wanted to say and then i will ask you a question um i was such a huge fan of a couple of things you did when i was in college your uh 12 inch ecstasis was one of my favorites. I had the poster in my dorm room and I would listen to that all the time. And then um, your uh, participation in, I believe it's everyone freestyling over the beat from Cyan Yeshua on a mm -hmm. day like no other. I actually made a presentation in my poetry class about your verse in particular and how you switched languages in between. I don't remember what I said or anything like that because that was a really long time ago. But I just wanted you to know that um, at a certain point in my life, you were uh, just like blowing my mind as a hip hop fan. And I've always thought you were incredibly skilled and in that the way that you approached your art, both as a kind of experimental hip hop person and just as a really skilled MC was always really impressive. Um, so to round about to a question, um, again, just to kind of help provide context for people, you did a ton of work with uh, Mary Joy recordings. Yes. And um, can you talk a little bit about who was involved in that and kind of the the tags of the times and just the whole the whole project of what they, that was that was? I don't think it's talked about enough. Yeah. So uh, Mary Joy Recordings is a independent label um, by my good friend Nori Hiro. Higo, and we, we all just call him by his last name, Higo. So he's, yeah, he he's just a, a label A&R, you would say. He's still very active, helping much younger younger rappers in Japan right now. But for a time, you know, ever since I met him, probably around 96, um, 
and then well into the 2000s you know i along with other friends in the bay we were really trying to push this uh underground you know hip-hop compilation style so it was it was a very short-lived thing you know what i mean like especially after um 9-11 happened uh, <laughs> i'm gonna blame it on that because like a lot of hip-hop distributors just kind of went out of business um or it seemed like they kind of flaked out and then a lot of independent uh, music was affected if you remember like uh was it trc and land speed and all that you know so um well anyway so that was just an operation basically funded by my friend in japan but we managed to press records in the states and get them on you know in indie distribution networks so that's that's what it was and then we also successfully uh uh made the tours happen you know we brought over living legends and ac alone and a lot of great things happened in Japan because at the time everybody wanted to go to Japan as well. And the Japanese audience was really thirsty for US underground, especially West Coast. That's dope, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um uh I'm an MC. I listen to your stuff. You're bilingual, and it makes me wonder as a bilingual MC in Japanese. Do you have a different palette of things you can talk about? And let me just explain a little bit. Uh, when I'm writing rhymes, I find that the things that rhyme together, you make sense out of them, right? Like we're kind of in that way limited. I'm limited by English and what I can say and what rhymes with what. Do you have an expanded palette because you you can speak two languages? And what is your writing process like? Well, that's a great question, and I always answer. Um, by saying this, which is I really let the music dictate what I'm going to either talk about or how I rap about or what emotions I'm going to put in. It's kind of like method acting, you know what I mean? And especially the way I approach Japanese from day one is that I didn't want to uh, kind of Americanize my Japanese, which a lot of people did back then and still do to this day. You know, they'll just try to make Japanese sound like English as much as possible in terms of cadence and even pronunciation or just mixing the two languages together. And that was never my approach from the beginning. So I've always kept kept it mindful, except for a couple of instances that I mix the two languages. So with my Japanese writing, I almost try to keep it very traditional and I try to make Japanese, you know, kind of sound very poetic and and just the nature of the language is a little bit i could be a little bit more nuanced and experimental than i can be in english yeah yeah mm. but but you know that said as a disclaimer you know i i didn't really seriously start writing and recording till i was 1819 which is pretty late for an average mc in my opinion you know so my skills were very very raw even if i listen back to my old stuff i'm quite <laughs> shocked by how raw it was because I basically lacked the experience you know and also at the time you couldn't really edit your takes too much you know what I'm saying like you would just save money go to the studio and we couldn't get behind the console to even edit our own waveform so it was either you had it down pat or you did it whether you read read it off a paper or not you know it, it didn't matter so a lot of stuff just got pressed 
with just really raw takes, but that was the that was just what went on in the in the mid nineties, you know what I mean? Before we all had our own laptops and whatnot. So that said, you know, I I knew I was really behind in the skills and experience experience department, but I really try my best to kind of channel my own uniqueness and my own skill set and ideas. And I really was just so consumed by making things, you know, that was, that was, that's what really drove me. It was fun, you know, just like you guys mentioned, you know, it was really fun to think about the packaging, you know, what art should I collab with? And that's all I cared about, you know, and obviously this is pre social media, pre anything. So we're, we're just, having fun making things and also being influenced by everybody else that uh, we ran with at the time. Thank you for explaining that. Um, you know, you touched on living legends a little bit earlier, and I want to just circle back on that a little bit. Like um, as somebody who had moved here, um, had moved to the Bay and um, they had already sort of, they were beginning their movement. How, how did they strike you? And um, eventually you started working with them. What was the uh, working process like? Yeah, so I, I listened to your Sunspot episode. And thank you, thank you. And really took me back. And of course, I see those guys time to time, you know, if if <laughs> briefly, but you know what I mean? Like, and, and it always takes us back to the, like, none of these guys ever really age. So physically or mentally. So we're all very close in that way. You know, it's almost like... Um, you know that feeling you just pick up right where you left off kind like all my mentors like sunspot and dell and these guys never change so it's it's really the same to me but having said that the way it started was uh so it was fall of 93 you know i'm there as a freshman and then my only skill set that i had back then was i could draw you know and i really loved illustration and I have my whole um, kind of influence from Japanese manga. That's all I uh, was influenced by. And I, I drew all of my life, you know, throughout my childhood, when I was in Tanzania, when I was in London, when I was in Japan, that was my skill. So I kind of translated that into hip hop as far as doing kind of caricatures. And and I was, I was passing out drawings and then that's when Corey saw me. I don't remember exactly when it was, but he saw me and then I probably showed him my folder of drawings. And because I used to carry around with me, you know, that's that's like people having the gram, like I have my portfolio. So I probably showed it to him and it, on the spot, he'd be like, okay, you should draw this and that, that and, you know, and then I started doing the covers for the UHB magazines and then he would let me do all the flyers and, it was it was just a lot of fun, you know. So that's how I, Corey was like my gateway to the whole scene. And then once you meet one guy, you meet the next guy and the next guy, and then one thing led to another. And yeah, that's that's how I was introduced to that scene. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Um, I, I sometimes wish we had made the forty-five minute drive up to Telegraph more often and gotten more involved earlier, but here we are. Uh, mm -hmm. We're uh, catching it on the back end. I wanted to talk a little bit about your album, 400. Um, I'm a big co-signer fan. Um, when I was a record store buyer, I had the opportunity to meet him a few times. I think Bittersweets is an amazing and completely mm -hmm. underrated record. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about making that album? And you you have to describe the cover art. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, yeah, a period I was working with co-signer slash hero. I haven't talked to him in like a couple of decades, to be honest with you. But that was when I was living in El Cerrito. And because the previous album to that was like really live instrument heavy on top of samples. So at the time, so this is around probably spring of 2001. We, we were like, okay, let's just uh, build this album strictly with just records because uh, Hero knew a lot of records and breaks. And then, so he probably contributed to like half the samples or, or if maybe two thirds, who knows? And I brought brought in the rest and then I built everything on my Kurzweil sampler. So yeah, so that's how the album was built. And then I probably did end up adding a few instruments back in Japan, but what had happened was I was pretty much done with the album, but I was in Japan and then 9-11 happened. And then all my flights got canceled. Nobody could fly for like, uh, who knows for like a month or two it was a very traumatic time if you recall so i ended up finishing the album there and i also did the cover art as a react as the reaction to the ongoing media frenzy of, you know about terrorists and this impeding war so i that's why i put the brain and then <laughs> and then the it's a cross section but i put the brain and the you know penis inside like it's a mind fuck you know but it was more of a political statement than a sexual one. And you know what I mean? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. It, I don't was... mean to put you on the spot and I'm giggling like I'm five no, years no, no. old. It's, I, I used to stock records and it's always like you, you get the box and you open it up. You're like, whoa, okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad to hear there's, um, there's a little bit, um, yeah. you know, more, more to it than the, the quick salacious, uh, you know, just mm -hmm. shock of the imagery. Right. But yeah, it's, it, it always stood out, even in a time where there was everyone had vinyl, everyone had records. That's not the case anymore. But, you know, I just I, I, I really like that record. I need to give it a re-listen. But I remember it vividly as like, I think that's part of it, right? It's it's bright red. It's eye-catching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So it's one of those things like when you're young and, you know, you have so many different outlets, you always have ideas just brewing in your head. And, you know, at the time or even leading years leading up to it, you know, we would always be either making songs or art or t-shirts or, so you're always trying to shuffle like, okay, what, how, how can I maximize this idea? So I, I've always had that idea of, you know, putting the penis in the brain, but that was the time it came out, you know? So it wasn't, it wasn't conceived because of 9-11, but I just had saved it in my head. Okay, fuck, this is the time to do it, you know? And yeah. And and that's when I just kind of drew it on a canvas and I painted it in myself and, and and put it out as a record. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I I wanted to ask about you as an artist coming from Japan, kind of landing in the Bay Area scene. When, if I recall correctly, there weren't really Japanese MCs that were we are aware of on this side at that time. Did you feel yourself to be a pioneer or a trailblazer? Or did you have any of that kind of, uh, I'll say, weight upon you? Like if you didn't get this right, it would it would mess it up for other folks coming behind you? 
No, not really. If anything, um, being in the barrier took a, any any kind of pressure off of me, off of me. But if anything, I was just really trying hard for myself, you know, to be accepted in the community because I was Asian, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it might have been tougher in any other area in the country at the time, but being in the Bay, you know, you already had like Filipino American DJs right. or a lot right. of Asian people in the community in the radio scene. You know, I had all all the great people around me, you know, like Jeff Chang was uh, DJ Zen working mm -hmm. for Soul Size. We had Oliver Wang at, you know, he's a great writer. He was, he was, I think he was posted up at Cal, you know what I mean? And oh yeah, all of my friends were either mixed or Asian or Filipino or, you know, what so <laughs> i just had to be dope that that's all that's all all it was you know and, and like i said my my in to the to the culture was my, my art skills so i was pretty confident as an artist but i was very um still rough in terms of in terms of performance and recording so that i was i was just too busy just trying to <laughs> you know experiment and hone my skills i i didn't really worry about how how good I was back then, you know, it was almost like being an athlete. Like I I knew how to train a lot, and of course, comparing myself to all the established rappers in Japan, I I knew I had something to prove. You know what I'm saying? Like I knew that I could do something different based on the influence that I was being exposed to back then. Thank thanks for that explanation. That's a very um, personally striking. Um answer for me. Um, but I want to move on a little bit. Um, one of one of your standout works to me was uh, 1999's uh, The Little Prince. Um, you know, I remember just sort of being long and epic. And I think subsequently you did other chapters too. But I want to talk about the first one. And can you just sort of tell us the, me the mechanics of, of that and how it was put together? Uh, I'll give you the me medium long version. I think... Um... <laughs> So the first cassette I did was with a producer named Boss One, B-A-S One. I'm sure you guys know him because he's been around San Jose. He's He was like a really brash battle rapper. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're all in the same class, you know, Dell and Corey, Boss. So he was like one of my first um, producers. And one time we were hanging out at the airport randomly i'm not sure if it was the time we went to uh san diego or or b-boy jam i forgot what it was but we were just chilling at the airport and then he starts talking to these musicians and they happen to be i think the <laughs> band for luther vandros or something random like that and then one of the players were talking about oh you know how music is uh so powerful it was a uh, Igor Stravinsky, Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring caused a riot in the audience. So that stuck with me. So I went back and I probably bought the CD at the time or bought the record. And then it was the first phrase that came out, you know, came on the record. You know, so I just kind of looped that and had that in my in my beat selection. And then and then that was the musical bed for the storytelling of the Little Prince that I, I ended up using for the 1999 album. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, this is kind of a weird question. I apologize if this is at all culturally insensitive or anything. I'm just trying to understand. And I'm going to 
make kind of a joke and then ask a question. It it's kind of odd to move here to become an underground rapper, right? <laughs> like it's like um probably not I'm imagining what your family had in mind for you when you when you came here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but that's just a statement. My question is, and I again I just don't understand this, and I realize we're focusing a lot on the beginning of your career. That's when I was really into underground stuff. And so I know you have a, a illustrious career and for decades afterwards, but I guess my question is this. During this time, during the late 90s, early 2000s, you're pretty embedded in the Bay Area underground culture and having some success, but it's underground. And that was the term we used then. In Japan, were you a different kind of famous? Like, was your music bigger? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, of course. And first of okay. all, I, I totally agree with everything you say. I had a, what you call a EECS, Electrical Engineering and Computer Science degree at Cal. And I did finish. You know, but my focus was Telegraph Avenue, 100%, you know, 100%. Yeah. Like, that's all I thought about and cared about. So much yeah. so that my senior year, I went to my counsel, uh, academic counselor and I said, yo, I, I need to take time off, you know. And I took time off. I I worked, saved money, got equipment, and then um, went back to school, finished. And I never looked back. You know, I never got a nine to five. Uh, I did what I had to do to kind of pay the bills, but I didn't depend, you know, on my parents after school. And that was the deal. You know what I'm saying? Like I had to make it on my own. So that was yeah. that. Yeah. But it's, and to answer your second question, it's because of Mary Joy, um, our friend, Higo, he was hundred percent independent, but he's, he's, he, he was hundred percent creatively independent, but he's always had partners that invested in his uh, ventures okay so he's always had like sister labels you know that's how i met kenny she you know he's always had a good connection solid connection in the in the music industry over there right. so we fortunate for me i never really had a problem getting exposure out there in the in the magazines and getting decent distribution for time we were we were like on a major distribution out there so I was very fortunate that I was just kind of able to access that scene, you know? So I don't know if I would call that famous, but that was my introduction to the scene at least, you know, like sure. imagine, like, of course I wouldn't compare myself to any huge U.S. rapper over here because I, I, I was never on that level stateside in terms of any kind of uh, exposure or promotion you know what i'm saying like i never yeah. hired a hired a published publicist one time in the u.s it was strictly off a of word of mouth but yeah yeah imagine anyone who had a decent public uh relation pr uh in the states i had that in japan sure that that makes yeah. sense thank you and i'm just trying to uh, uh understand the different sizes of the scenes america is so vast geographically there's so many different pockets um i was just wondering kind of what what translated and what didn't? And um, did you ever meet DJ Plattern when you lived here? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he's he's our buddy. And one time we were drunk, and I was just like, "So, like, are you famous in Iceland? Like, I don't. I would just want to understand." Like, and he basically said yes. Uh, but he, I just I always wonder, like, if doing something here makes it on a slightly bigger platform back home. And because I've always lived in the U S I don't have a good understanding of it. So I appreciate what you said. I understand what you said. And it's like, it's not about fame per se. It's about um, 
access to the avenues of information and that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, of course. And over the time that has slightly shifted too. I think it's it's a, it's a almost a flex to say I'm big in Japan now, you know. <laughs> whether whether it's in the music field or the fashion field, you know, time times have changed quite a bit. Yes, absolutely. And it, and it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to just go anywhere and get plugged into the scene and kind of earn genuine respect for what you do you know what yes. i'm saying like so, uh, so unless you yeah. i think what people who are outside of the underground ethos don't understand is how much of a currency respect was at a time where there was basically no money but it was palpable who was co-signed and who was not and clearly you were right and are so thanks thanks man i appreciate it yeah i mean i don't know if i were automatically <laughs> co-signed even in japan it really took some time mm. uh like even Higo and Mary Joy we were always doing experimental things and we weren't necessarily in line with what was going on in Japan so mm. and, and I guess initially because of my first couple of albums like more rock fans in Japan who were hesitant to co-sign hip-hop kind of bought into what we were doing and and that was like the story in the 90s for me you know what I mean? And then in a 2000, I started working with Nujaves and then it was it was uh, more digestible for, mm. you know, for for a lot of other people. Awesome, man. Thanks for thanks for breaking that down. Uh, you're a world citizen. You moved around quite a bit. You have a, this long track record. What are you up to these days? I mean, same, same, you know, what's funny is that I don't feel any different. I still feel underground. I still feel in, independent, you know. I don't answer to anyone. I just do what I do. Yeah. I just got done doing like five shows with my DJ in Japan. It was it was really good. Um, yeah, just doing my thing. That's awesome, man. We're we're glad you can make time to chat with us. Shingo too. Thanks for coming on the program, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much. Real pleasure to meet you. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so we'll uh, tag you in some posts when we drop this. I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be at this point because we're kind of running into the end of the year. But um, yeah, man, just like you, thanks for the candor and thanks for hanging out. And um, I, I, I need to rebuy Ectasis. I have the Discogs page <laughs> up now. <laughs> I lost that one at some point. Yeah, 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 yeah. All I right. mean, you know, we all have crazy stories in the past. <laughs> <laughs> each little thing that we did brings back really good memories you know yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. but but i i know we're not even recording right now but i just yeah. cannot overstate how brilliant you know for for the age that these guys were you know you know what i'm saying like because when i was 18 like hyro was all, all already up here yeah and then freestyle fellowship was already up here and they were like giants you know what i mean but yeah if you think about it they're still in their late teens early 20s doing such brilliant work like how 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 does that even happen you know i know and, and that was just so mind-blowing and i don't think it's been replicated ever you know and, yeah. and we, you know i mean we've all seen uh, documentaries about project bloat and stuff like that but it's it's so crazy how advanced kids were back then absolutely can, can i ask her a question and i actually might use this um <laughs> I, I might cut this back in why do you think the japanese market uh 
was gravitated towards or attracted to the West Coast underground sound? I've heard other people say that. I've never been to Japan, but why do you think there was that connection there? Um, I mean, the Japanese crowd in the mid to late 90s, they kind of gravitated towards underground stuff in general because of how the record stores, especially the vinyl stores, curated music. Mm. And, you know, if you recall at the time, Shibuya was like the epicenter of vinyl culture, you know, yeah. they were famous for being in the Guinness books for having the most records, record stores per square mile or something like that. So I still remember vividly, you know, like you just walk into the record store, it was almost like walking into a blockbuster or something or like a library, you just felt like a place of education and being exposed to fashion, culture, everything through music, you know what I mean? And and of course you had a lot of print meat and everything like that, but listening to the latest 12 inch and just, you just felt like a commitment to that culture, you know? Mm -hmm. So even if it was a white label, if it was on the wall <laughs> of a record store, that was premium real estate, you know? So that's, so people were really competitive in trying to get like the latest and the greatest underground sound and that's how uh like these compilation movements came about people wanted to and then and then you know that kind of led to people wanting to find more and more obscure stuff and you know they they weren't happy with just knowing what was popping in la they needed to know what was happening in san francisco and in east bay and then south bay and then same same with uh new york underground you know what i mean like because everybody listens to all the famous top 40 stuff. Right. But only a few people listen to company flow or, you know what I mean? That, that type of thing. Like there was a, there was a sense of loyalty to that scene. Yeah, I mean, a, we, we've made a whole podcast out of it, but we were here. You know what I mean? It's just so, yeah, uh, it, it still resonates uh, in so many different ways. Um, that's so interesting. And still, I I think Dave, you can attest to this um dave helps run a small label like they still sell quantity to japan and that helps pay for the release and then it just it allows you to then yeah the packaging a little bit differently or you make a variant for the japanese market and there's still it feels like from the outside that japan yeah. there are clusters of japanese people who create scenes that still want physical media even to this day yeah yeah i mean what's a little bit sad is that all that has disappeared over the last 20 years you know what I mean? Like that generation has grown older and because of the explosion of Japanese domestic hip hop ah. and all these rap battles and now high school kids are rapping on TV, you know, so all of the Japanese listenership moved on to consuming Japanese hip hop instead of independent American hip hop. And that's and, a, and that makes yeah. sense. But it's yeah. also I, I know what you're saying. It's a little it's kind of sad. It's like, oh, the moment passed. It, it definitely did. I don't think it's easy to move units in Japan anymore, especially physical media if you're, you know, if you're from the States and not yeah. like super well-known. And even if you are super well-known, it's it's going to be pretty hard. Yeah. Interesting. Just a climate, just a climate. Yeah, for sure. Man, I've always wanted to go. I know they just reopened uh, the country for visa holders, and I'm like keeping an eye on. <laughs> yeah, you, you should. Got to get, get over there someday. 
You should. Um, yeah. All right. We got to go. Thank you so Sage, much. Uh, really nice talking peace, to you. man. Really appreciate it. Blind application for hip hop admission. These ass naive and problematic ass affirmative action. So calm as you are. Shed skin, shed light. The four corners of the world so the story can be told. Told to the highest bidder of your own soul. Hold, hold. The wine is bitter if you went at to go. So it's the epidermis. The permit to perform what is a hermit. Have a chance to earn it. A minimum wage turning it to maximum rage. The arts better pave the ways because nowadays a playboy hustlers living in a penthouse. High society fantasy Don't you realize that it's so painful for a hip-hop fantasy Their favorite MC Stoop down to the level of These are the all my favorite things Material things, they all come from your dreams So now how come we don't like the music that we select? How come we don't like the presidents we elect? Mentally sick figures talking about six figures With no artistic skill like stick figures Superstitious blind artists Better take the D out Now you got seven wonders to solve before you plunder Never underestimate the price of unseen underground real estate intellectual property when a metamorph metaphor kick properly a sharp pin is mightier the guns max radio and video collective mediocre media bystander deviation from the average lyrical leverage sound found in the spectrum respect from a kid is all i want as a reporter so fuck a dead beat mc with no juvenile support support, support.